Welcome to the Voices from the Road podcast, episode number 11, with me, Valerie Singleton. And me, James Luckhurst. This time round, we'll be off to West Africa in the company of Keith Smith Dutton in the early 1980s. And we'll hear what happened when his Peugeot fan belt snapped in an isolated rural location, threatening him and his travelling companion with a very long walk for help. Our in-house history pundit, Dr Alan Wakeley, will be looking at 1956 and how the Suez crisis led to a rapid rise in the popularity of tiny cars that were cheap to run. And we'll head back to Christmas 1967 as a 24-year-old journalist makes his way to 10 Downing Street to collect an embargoed copy of the New Year's Honours List. He does a double take on Whitehall as he's face-to-face suddenly with royalty, stuck in a broken-down limousine. So, let's start in 1956. The year of the Federal Aid Highway Act, which paved the way for more than 41,000 miles of interstate highways across the USA. The release of Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, and the crisis caused by the Egyptian nationalisation of the Suez Canal. One of the consequences of this was a global worry about fuel availability and a move to produce smaller, more economical cars, as Alan Wakeley now recalls. There was a period between 60 and 70 years ago when a crop of very small cars, usually known generically as bubble cars, appeared on British roads, although very few of them actually originated in Britain. This was a time before we entered the European common market, which of course we subsequently left again after 40 years or so. Debate about the advantages and or disadvantages of Brexit is completely irrelevant here, but it is certainly true that before we entered in the first place, manufactured goods originating in the EU were subject to an import tax, as were British goods going the other way. This included cars which is why you saw very few Renaults, Fiats or Volkswagens and so on in the UK, and conversely why you hardly ever saw a Morris Minor or a Ford Anglia in Paris, Brussels or Cologne. But for some reason, bubble cars broke the rules and were for a while hugely popular. The Suez crisis of 1956 and the consequent rationing of petrol in the UK for several months fuelled excuse the pun, this popularity on the grounds that a tiny car would use a tiny amount of fuel and be cheaper to run even after paying the import tax. Looking back over more than half a century, I think this may have been rather less true than people thought at the time. But before discussing that, let's have a look at some of the cars themselves. In this country, the majority of bubble cars appeared under one of five marks. BMW, yes really, Isetta, Messerschmitt, Heinkel and Trojan. But there were only three types really, because the BMWs were basically rebadged Isettas, and likewise the Trojans were essentially clones of the Heinkel. All bubble cars were very small, with a maximum capacity of two adults, plus a shopping bag or two, or to push a baby, although without any room for the pushchair to get in as well. To get into a Messerschmitt, you lifted the roof sideways and clambered in over the other side, creating quite a problem if you were going to a wedding, a party or the races. The other types had a door, which was actually the whole of the front of the vehicle. This opened outwards and upwards to reveal a bench seat that would, just, take two adults side by side. The steering wheel and dashboard were attached to the inside of the door, necessitating some quite complicated linkage to the engine, which was behind the seat. 
There was, of course, no bonnet. Most models did have four wheels, but the diminutive cars all narrowed down at the back, meaning that the rear wheels were very close together. Unsurprisingly, three-wheeled versions also appeared, and were particularly popular in countries like the UK, where three-wheeled vehicles were classed as tricycles or motorcycles rather than cars, making them cheaper to insure. They could be driven from age 16 rather than 17, and they had the huge advantage that your new girlfriend could sit next to you in the dry, an advantage that is over a motorbike. The general view was that although most lads were happy enough to have a girl clinging round their waist for dear life whilst riding pillion in the pouring rain, the girls themselves had other ideas which the bubble car fulfilled nicely. In the end, we did produce a few in the UK, but not in the areas traditionally associated with car production. Was this automotive engineering snobbery in places like Coventry or Ellesmere Port? I'm not sure. But BMW Isettas were made next to Brighton Railway Station, and all the Trojan versions of the Heinkel were produced in, of all places, Croydon. In fairness, Trojan did already make a few vehicles, some rather quirky delivery vans, which were chiefly used for dry goods like tea. All the bubble cars would, of course, fail a whole series of safety standards by today's criteria. However, they were cheap to own and run, and were for a time both fashionable and quirky. The link to petrol rationing in 1957 is tenuous. All the models were in production prior to that crisis. Furthermore, there were other options available offering comparable fuel economy, but they were more conventional and hence less fashionable. Let's look at a few. Firstly, the smallest conventionally shaped car, the Gogomobile. This was German, so it was quite well made, especially mechanically. However, anyone over about 5 foot 8 would have a job getting into one. It had four seats, but everyone, including the driver, needed to be tiny. It sold quite well on the continent, but import taxes really did hold it back here. Note, however, that the European bubble cars sold well enough here, taxes notwithstanding, and this demonstrates to me that fashion can perhaps override common sense. In Europe, common sense also surfaced in cars like the Citroën de Chevaux, the Fiat Topolino and its successor, the Fiat 500. The Citroën wasn't, in terms of dimensions, that small, but its engine certainly was. Early models had a 375cc engine. Later models were available with engine sizes up to the dizzying heights of 602cc. The Fiats were actually little bigger than the bubble cars, but had the merit of being car rather than bubble shaped. Furthermore, a six-footer could get into and drive a Fiat 500 quite comfortably. I know, I once owned one. It should be pointed out that the car of the 50s and 60s was much smaller anyway, although similar in shape to the Fiat 500 on the market today as a retro design. In Britain, cheaper motoring was offered initially by the Ford Popular, which appeared in two guises. The first was a rehash of the pre-war Anglia offered in the 1950s at £199, less than half the cost of the first Mini. The Ford Pop, as it was universally known, was unbelievably basic. For example, it had no heater and only one windscreen wiper that barely cleared a quarter of the screen. After some years, a new version appeared, based this time on a post-war Anglia. It still had absolutely no refinements, but was also extremely cheap. The Mini, known originally as either an Austin 7 or a Morris Mini Minor, appeared in 1959 and revolutionised the whole car market, 
creating a new niche for small city cars, which lasted for decades, even if it is diminishing a little nowadays. During the whole of the second half of the 20th century, there was a series of oil crises, starting with the Suez Crisis in 1956, continuing with a series of wars involving Arab-Israeli conflict, and then Iraq against a succession of other nations, including the UK. All of these wars affected the supply of oil and led to wild fluctuations in petrol prices controlled by OPEC, the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Countries. This was headed up for many years from the mid-60s by the Saudi Foreign Minister Sheikh Yamani. He became a figure of hatred in Western countries, especially after he on one occasion quadrupled the oil price overnight. Yamani spoke not merely fluent but flawless English and was unfailingly polite, which seemed in some ways to make him all the more menacing. So the impression arose that he was responsible for Brits driving small or even very small cars. Obviously fuel prices played a part in this, but small cars largely preceded the shake. I reckon we actually like small cars, whilst pretending to want the sort of thing we saw Steve McQueen driving in American movies and blaming Sheikh Yamani for forcing her hand. Perhaps you think I'm wrong. Well, perhaps. Alan Wakeley on 1956 and the subsequent rise of smaller, cheaper cars. Our next memory comes from 1967, and it's around Christmas time in London. Jerry Johns is a young reporter on an important mission for his paper when he encounters the most unlikely broken-down vehicle. 1967, I was 24 years old and working as a young, pretty inexperienced reporter for a Nottingham newspaper group. But the great thing was I was in Fleet Street and it had always been my ambition to get to Fleet Street. I don't know what I thought I was going to do when I got there, but anyway, that's where I ended up. The job involved, I was really assistant to the London editor. Uh, it was in the heyday of Fleet Street when all the national newspapers were there. Across the road was the Telegraph and next to that was the Express in its famous Black Palace and round the corner was the Mail and so on. And um, they, they, they were heady days and the place buzzed. And it was also at a time when most provincial newspapers had London offices because they usually required um, access to Parliament as, you know, with lobby tickets and lobby correspondence. And I was working for the London editor of the Nottingham Guardian Journal and Evening Post. So we had a morning and an evening paper to service. Anyway, that was the setup. And what I re really recall is that on one crisp, rather dark, cold, December morning, just before Christmas, I was asked to go down and collect an advanced copy of the New Year's Honours list from Downing Street, because this was in the, I think they still do, in fact, advanced copies of the Honours were issued to the press on a strictly embargoed arrangement so that we had time to sort of contact and, um, and interview the recipients before it was publicly announced who had been awarded honours. And there I was walking down Whitehall on my way to Downing Street. And I think I must have, well, in fact, I know I, I've got pretty well down towards the entrance to Horse Guards Parade. 
and I was just about to walk across the entrance when a car, it was a, not a car, it was a limousine actually pulled out in front of me across the pavement and s- stopped. And it took me a, a sort of second or two to work out what was going on. But what I remember is I watched what happened, saw the uh, sort of assistant chauffeur who happened to be sitting in the front passenger seat, uh, leap out and open the bonnet. And while he was sort of, and the driver, meanwhile, was trying to start the car. But what really caught my attention was that I looked in the window of the rear passenger seat, and to my astonishment, found myself staring at the Queen. She was sitting in the back with the Duke of Edinburgh. I stared at her. She looked at me. I mean, I don't know who looked more surprised, but I, I suspect she wasn't that surprised, but I was. And while this happened, a policeman then appeared from nowhere, and the policeman and the assistant chauffeur then pushed the limousine back into inside the entrance to horse guards. And the whole thing happened in a sort of matter of seconds, it seemed. It probably took a few minutes. And with that, I was sort of left to walk on, still blinking, wondering what on earth I had just witnessed. And I remember that morning for all sorts of reasons. I mean, not only that extraordinary encounter with the Queen breaking down in front of me, but then I walked on down to Downing Street, and it was the first time and only time that I'd ever been inside. Actually, we entered via the door to number 11, picked up our the copy of the, the New Year's Honours, and exited, because there's a corridor dividing the two, exited via number 10, the one and only time I've been inside 10 Downing Street. I think I heard afterwards, incidentally, that the she and the Duke were on their way to spend Christmas at Sandringham. So this was presumably the start of their journey. I hope they got there in time, because right, you would have thought the Royal Limo would have been in better shape than to be stalled. I don't know what would have caused it to stall, but whatever it was, you know, they got it fixed, presumably, and they're on their way. And you got your New Year's Honours list and headed back to the office. Can you remember there being any names in the Honours list that you had to follow up, any Nottingham people who were worthy of a story? <laughs> I cannot possibly remember that far back. Anybody of that time, no. But I remember... I remember getting back to the office, and in fact, my other thought was what afterwards, but too late. What a pity! What a pity! I didn't have a camera because if I'd had a camera at the time, and actually snapped the you know this car breaking down in front of me, or the limo, the royal limo breaking down, that that would have been a great picture. But as it was, I remember getting back to the office and very excitedly recounting the tale. Jerry Johns on the broken down royal vehicle in December 1967. Finally, for this episode, we're in 1982, the year of the Falklands War, the birth of Prince William, now Prince of Wales, and the release of Michael Jackson's album Thriller, which sold 25 million copies. We're heading to Nigeria in the company of Keith Smith Dutton. He's over there with his work as an engineer in the oil industry, and he's in an old Peugeot heading through an isolated location. In the um, 19, early 1980s, I was the um, uh, regional director for health, safety uh, and training for 
an oil service company called Otis. And um, as such, we had, uh, I think by memory, about 17 locations in um, 11 or 12 countries, um, a lot of them in Africa and, of course, in Europe. So I covered Europe, Africa. And in Nigeria, we had three locations. We had um, Port Harcourt, Wari, and Lagos. And I'd gone down there to do um, safety audits on the two main locations, the two working locations, which were Port Harcourt and Wari. And um, when I got down to Wari uh, and did the safety audit there, we had to go across to Port Harcourt, but the planes, uh, the airports were on strike. So we chose to drive, which was about five to six hour driving. Pretty much tarmac roads, but through jungle, of course, you know, so fairly smallish roads, but um, reasonable quality. But So uh, that's why we chose to drive. So there was myself and my um, local health and safety rep, uh, a German guy, who um, he drove a, a Peugeot 504. And so we drove across to Port Harcourt. Well, about three to three and a half hours into the journey, uh, just motoring along, sort of chatting away. And then all of a sudden we got this sort of whirring, clattering in the engine compartment. And uh, immediately the vehicle starts to overheat. So we stopped, clicked the bonnet, and we found that the um, there's five fan belts in there which drive various things, but the one to the water pump had actually, sh had actually shredded. And uh, that was the center one of the five. So um, thinking what to do next, we thought, well, somewhere around about a mile or so back, we had passed um, a village. And so we thought that the best idea really is to go back and uh, try and get help in the village. Well, in 1982, there wasn't a lot of traffic on that road anyway. So waiting for a car to come along was not the best idea, especially as it was sort of, um, I guess, about two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And it gets dark about sort of 6.30 uh, in, in the evening. So, um, yeah, so rather than sort of split up and one stay with the car and, and the other walk back to the village, it's not really safe for especially a white guy to go walking on his own um, in that sort of environment. So we left the car, which was um, a bit of a risky choice, but we, both of us walked back. And it took us, I guess, about 40 minutes. So our one mile, our mile back was a little bit more than what we actually um, thought it was. So anyway, we, we finally arrived in this village, pretty hot and sweaty because the temperature must have been way up in the in the 90s Fahrenheit. Um, you're looking at upper 30s in um, Celsius. And uh, so we got into the village and, of course, we asked for the village headman, which if you want to do business there of any description, you go to the head headman first and then you get his permission to sort of speak to 
whoever it is you want to see. So we, we managed to get hold of the headman and we told him what our problem was, that we had this shredded fan belt and we did, needed a vehicle mechanic or we needed somebody that could come out in a vehicle and um, uh, take us through to Port Harcourt or um, you know arrange a tow for the vehicle or something like that. So anyway, um, the headman took us to a part of the village where there was uh, a car on its side and a couple of young lads welding the bottom of the car. They don't bother with jacking and laying down on that. They just flick it over on its side and then weld the bottom. And uh, they're not worried about a few scratches, dents or whatever, so long as the car runs. You know? So um, we were introduced to the, their mechanic and told him what the problem was. So immediately he goes over and says, yeah, he says, I can help you. And he opens the, like a massive front barn door on his workshop. And there must have been about every fan belt imaginable on that door. And so he takes a quick look at ours and then he flicks through and he picks up um, a fan belt. And he said, that's the one that you need. Um, we told him, of course, it was a Peugeot 504, but he seemed to know his business pretty well. And um, then he picks up another older fan belt and uh, he said, okay, well, what about, are you going to take us out to the car? car? He says, uh, we don't have a vehicle that runs in the village at the moment. He says, that's the only vehicle over there, the one on its side. He said, it's not ready yet. He said, but I'll send... Um, I send my mechanic to go with you and replace the fan belt. So anyway, he calls this young lad who's about, he was actually 13 years old and um, about four foot in the fag end. And he gives him these two fan belts and uh, uh, gives him some instructions in, in sort of very pidgin English. And he said, uh, this boy will come and fix the fan belt for you. I said, well, where's his toolbox? And he says, oh, he doesn't need a toolbox. He said, but he'll fix the fan belt. I said, well, you know, that's a long walk back for this guy to come out and then find he can't fix it. Oh, he says he'll fix it. No problem. He'll fix it. So, of course, we had no option really but to trust what was going on. And so we walked back with the young lad uh, about another 40 minutes and get to the car. And... Of course, flicked under the hood and, uh, and the little chap, we had to kind of lift him up on the wing a bit so he could see into the engine and he looks down. And the next thing is he's sort of climbing into the engine compartment and he starts weaving these two fan belts in and out of the fan belts that exist. And we were very, very sceptical about what was going to happen, you know. So um, anyway, eventually he gets his legs out of the engine compartment and uh, he said, okay, flick the key, just flick the engine. You know, so we sort of flicked it over and we did that twice. And he said, okay, stop. And he got back in there again and continued weaving his fan belts in and out. And he said, okay, flick it again. Well, this happened about three or four times. And, of course, we were just getting more and more skeptical about what he was doing. And the next thing is, he, we, we flicked it over and he said, okay, that's it fixed. And he takes the one fan belt away that he'd used, I guess, to 
helped weave the other one in and out. And we looked in the engine, and there was the fan belt right in the middle where it should be. So five pulleys in there, or a whole bunch of pulleys. There was the air conditioning fan belt, and there was... Um, I'm not sure what they were all for, but there was a whole bunch of fan belts there, but the middle one was replaced. And so we started the engine. Everything seemed to run absolutely fine. So we turned around and took him back to the village. And uh, I think we paid probably a little less than five pounds for the fan belt. And we gave the lad a bit of pocket money on the way just for himself to hide Otherwise, if he didn't hide it, he'd never got it. It had been taken off him. But uh, I think we gave him about a pound fifty or something in Naira. And he was absolutely over the moon. And, uh, of course, we had to tip the village headman as well, which was, I think the whole thing cost us less than ten pounds. Keith Smith Dutton remembering some pretty deft vehicle maintenance skills from rural Nigeria. And it brings us to the end of this latest episode in the Voices from the Road podcast. I'll be back next time with another selection from our podcast archive. But for now, from me, Valerie Singleton. And me, James Luckhurst. It's goodbye.